The first wedding I've ever been to was the wedding of one of my best friends. We were in first grade. Jerwin Bebe and Raquel were going to get married at the second recess of the day. Not the first recess, because that was only 20 minutes. The second recess before lunch, which was 30 minutes, okay? And so they were set to have this wedding ceremony. We were first graders. And I remember I was talking to Jerwin in the bathroom. And I don't know, I was, must have watched a lot of movies. But I was like, Jerwin, are you sure? Like, you ready to do this? Like, I'm ready. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what happened. I missed it, honestly, because I got more intrigued by dodgeball. But I found out after that recess that the wedding was called off. The wedding of the century was called off. And I came to find out that Jerwin was crying in the bathroom. I said, Jerwin, what happened? He said, I gave her a ring that I got from the cereal box. And she said it wasn't good enough. And she said, we're not getting married anymore. And I remember comforting him at that time. And, you know, Jerwin actually visited our church a few years ago. And uh, that was my first wedding experience. And, you know, from a young age, something within us gravitates towards this idea of marriage, doesn't it? A culture ingrains within us this idea that marriage is just part of the plan. It's something that we should want, something that should happen at some point in our lives. But I feel like most of us don't really understand what it is. Obviously, you know, our congregation is mostly single. I went through the painstaking task of writing down, because we're a small church, every person in our church and seeing if they're single or not. And dating does not count as married, okay? So I considered you single. Guess what percentage we are of single to married folks here? Just any guess? 90, 99. (laughs) Well, I was quite shocked We're actually 75% single, 25% married. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, we got a lot more married folks in the last few years. God's answered our prayer, but still, we are overwhelmingly a majority single folks. And actually, according to research that was conducted in 2019, they say roughly 50.2% of American adults are single, which is up from a few decades ago where the national average was 30%. And they say that the same percentage of adults said that dating has, been, um, has become increasingly more difficult in the last 10 years. Can I get an amen? Y'all tell me about your online dating horror stories. I understand. I hear it. And they say out of that 50.2% of single American adults, 15% of those American adults who are single and looking for a serious, long-term committed relationship Most of them say that they're dissatisfied with their dating lives and that it's been difficult to find people to date. Can I get another amen? They say that the average age at which men and women marry has increased over the last few decades. Now it's at 35-year-old for men and 33-year-old for women. And last I checked, the statistic for marriages that end in divorce are currently 41% for first-time marriages. 60% for second-time marriages, and 73% for third-time marriages. Okay, why do I tell you these numbers? What do these numbers tell us? I'll tell you what it tells us. Number one, less and less people are getting married. Number two, we have more single people than ever before. Number three, dating has become harder than ever before. Number four, people are getting married later and later than ever before. And number five, for those lucky enough to find someone to marry, only have a 60% chance of staying together. All this to say, the odds are getting more and more stacked against marriages in our day 
and age. To add to that, how we view and approach marriage is ever-changing, some good, but also some bad. There's a New York Times article a few years ago that was published um, that talked about how marriage used to be about us, but now in our day, marriage has become more about me. In other words, marriage used to be about the good and thriving of both of us, about sometimes laying down what I want for the sake of the other, but now it's about looking out for my own interests. How do I find a partner that will satisfy my needs, satisfy my compatibility, meet my standards, propel me forward, make me happy, and me fulfilled? All that to say, all these shifts in the marriage landscape take us further and further away from God's heart and vision for marriage. And so whatever season you're in, whether you're looking to get married or you're enjoying your season of singleness and not looking for a man and a woman, or you're somewhere in between, I believe God wants to give you a vision for what marriage truly is and how it actually reflects a greater story than just the love story that we find ourselves in. And so in this mini collection, that's what we'll be exploring. Does that sound fun? Yeah, it sounds fun. I know, I know, I know. So I want to start by saying this. I think this is probably one of the most important things that you'll hear in this message. While marriage is good and beautiful, it's not everything. Marriage has often been idolized to be this be-all, end-all goal that will solve all my problems. And this is especially true in the church. We put marriage on this pedestal, and then singleness is kind of just second best. Or it's like sloppy seconds or leftovers, right? Can I just say marriage will not solve your loneliness problem? Marriage will not solve your insecurity problem. Marriage will not solve your lust problem. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not everything. And hear me, church, singleness is not a deficiency. And I know the church has done a horrible job of getting you to understand this because in the subtle ways that we speak and communicate, we kind of make singleness out to be second best. No. In fact, Jesus who was like the archetype for our faith, was single. Paul, like one of the greatest disciples in history that we still read notes from, Paul said it's better to be single than to be married. Marriage is just one of the ways God teaches us about covenant love, one of the ways that he forms us, but it's not the only way. I know some folks that are single in their 40s and 50s, And they're more more mature than some of my married folk friends that I know. It's not the only way that God grows us and teaches us about love. But with that said, I love being married. I love my wife. And I long for people to experience that same joy and delight in marriage that we've experienced. But I want to let you know that it's not the only way. And so if you are single, if you want to be single, any calls to celibacy here? No? Amen. If you want to get married, that's beautiful. There's no shame in that. If you don't want to get married, that's fine too. God works in all sorts of ways. Cool? All right. Why don't we look back to Genesis? I know we've been in Genesis a long time, but we're going to go to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Is what it says. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There's three things I feel like we can draw from this. And I think, you know, this isn't really a talk about sexuality or man-woman dynamics. This is more the heart of what God has intended for marriage and the dynamics that he's called us to enter into covenant love with. And there are three things that I want to highlight that we see from this passage that teach us about God's heart and vision for marriage. The first is this. Marriage is a fireplace. Look to your neighbor and say, marriage is a fireplace. I, I make you guys say weirdest things to each other. I'm so sorry. I don't know why. It's just the, the preacher in me just does it, but I just don't know when to do it at the right time. Anyway, marriage is a fireplace. It would be nice to have a fireplace here, wouldn't it? It's kind of cold. A fireplace represents warmth and intimacy. And intimacy, intimacy says, I want to see the real you, and I want you to see the real me. In other words, it's an invitation to knowing. Is there anyone you could think of that, like, knows you so well, like, knows you in and out? Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a best friend. Someone who's seen the real you, seen you at your best and at your worst. For me, that's Krista, and it annoys the hell out of me. Case in point, she knows me so well that she can get me to do anything, almost anything. I'll tell you, give you an example. Okay, so Krista is eating like a snack, right? Maybe it's like a new flavor of hot Cheetos, and she's eating it. And being the Enneagram type 2 that she is, she always wants to share. So she's like, Mickey, do you want some? And initially, I'll always say no because I'm, you know, I'm not really, really feeling snacky. I, I have my own snacks that I subscribe to that I love. So I just don't feel like it. It's okay, Krista. But then she does this thing. And she knows what she's doing. She'll go, mmm, this is so good. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be on my computer, on my phone. But when she says that, like, my ears will perk up. And, and then she'll, she'll slowly look at me and be like, you want some? Ten times out of ten, I'll say yes. And as I'm eating the snack that she gave me, whether it really is good or not, she gives me this look like, I got you. And it, it's so annoying. I hate it, but it works every single time. Like, do you have someone in your life that, like, knows you in and out, knows how you work, knows all the good things, all the hard things, all the ugly things, all the beautiful things about who you are? Scripture says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. In other words, they were completely bare before another. Nothing was hidden. Nothing was concealed. They were fully known by each other. Like they knew where that mole is that no one else knows where it is. They knew how they worked. They knew the ins and out of one another so deeply. There was nothing hidden. They were both completely naked. But not only were they fully known by each other, they were fully loved. It says they were both naked and felt no shame. I think one of the deepest fears that we carry as human beings is that if people really knew us, if they saw who we truly were, they wouldn't love us. If people saw the real me, they wouldn't stick around. 
They wouldn't want to be in relationship with me. And so we live with this deep sense of shame. We hide and we conceal parts about ourselves that we feel like if people saw, they would no longer love us. I don't allow people to see the real me. But here Adam and Eve were both fully naked, both fully known by one another, yet they felt no shame. They were fully known and fully loved. My man TK, now retired from the East East Coast, he says this, Tim Keller, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What's he saying? When we love without truly knowing someone, it's shallow, it's superficial. When we know someone but don't love them, that's our greatest fear. But when we fully know someone and fully love them, this is is the love of agape. This is the love of God. And this is what the covenant of marriage creates, a unique context where two people can be fully known and fully loved by one another, a place where we destroy the power of fear and shame together by saying, even when I see the worst of you, I will never stop loving you. A place where we dive past the superficialities of our age by saying, I don't want to just love the convenient parts of you. I want to love all of you. This is what marriage creates. Marriage is a return to Eden, a return to being naked and unashamed and fully seen and known. When we say I do, what are we saying I do to? Not just um, better tax benefits, not just not being lonely. When we say I do, think about the wedding vows. I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish you for as long as we both shall live. Congratulations. We are married now, by the way. Just kidding. I remember when Krista and I made those vows This April will be eight years, so crazy, 2016. Another life, another lifetime ago. You know, when we made our vows, we knew each other, and we had been friends for eight years before that. We had known each other for a long time, so we we knew each other, but we didn't know each other. You know what I mean? Like, not the kind of knowing that comes with years of life together. Not the kind of knowing that comes with storms, with fights, with tears, with disappointments, Not the kind of love that knows highs and lows and sticking it through in the tough seasons. And although our love was beautiful, it wasn't deep. Not yet. Now, whenever we attend a wedding and we hear those vows we recited eight years ago, it means something more. Why? Because those aren't just vows that we said. They're now vows that we've lived. We've chosen to love each other in sickness and in health. For the five plus times that I threw out my back skateboarding and Krista had to peel me off, a pr- a pregnant Krista had to peel me off the floor when I fell putting on my boxers coming out of the shower and I was on that cold floor naked for eight hours and she pulled me with her pregnant self to the bed in sickness and in health. 
for richer and for poorer. I remember a season where the church couldn't pay us. We were part-time baristas at Craftsman Wolves here in the city. Through the highs and the lows, we've chosen love again and again. And so these vows aren't just words anymore. They mean something. Marriage is the binding commitment to love no matter what. Outside of marriage, if I see something I don't like, if it gets hard and inconvenient, I can leave. But in marriage, what we're saying is I'm making a covenant before God, before our loved ones, and before you that I'm not going anywhere. And this is the unique context where we can be fully known and fully loved. It creates the kind of safety and security that cultivate that kind of love because I'm not afraid that when you see the real me that you'll be repulsed and bounce. I'm not afraid of of when I let you down, that you're going to go find someone else. I remember the vows we made, despite all the ugliness inside of us. And so marriage is a fireplace, fully known and fully loved. Number two, marriage is a mirror. One of the things that happen in marriage is your spouse becomes a mirror. A mirror that reflects you, your best self, your worst self, all of who you are. You know, a marriage and family psychologist that we know once told us, it's going to blow your mind that we subconsciously choose a partner who will trigger all of the unresolved childhood wounds and trauma that we carry. And so we subconsciously find someone that will like inflict pain on us because of our unmet childhood needs. And why? And I asked this, this is terrible. This is cruel. Why would that be the case? And then she told us this, because deep down inside, we know there are areas in our lives where we need to grow up, where we need to heal. And so what we'll do is we'll subconsciously choose someone, find someone who will help us mature, who will help us see our wounds and how they get in the way of love, who will trigger our pain points so that we're forced to grow up. Marriage is spiritual formation, y'all. It's a mirror. We see the parts of ourselves that are still needing to grow up, still needing to heal, still needing to be resolved. And this is why oftentimes your spouse knows just what to say to get under your skin. It's like they have a special gift and ability, like they're wired for it. Why? Because they're, they're subconsciously poking and prodding the immature parts of you that have never grown up so that you can heal and so that you can mature. When I was growing up, you know, I say it all the time. I'm an Enneagram type seven, Myers-Briggs ENFP. And so my natural tendency while I was growing up is we're not going to have the hard conversations. We're going to focus on the positive and the good. And we're never going to sit in negative negative emotions or hard emotions. Now, I marry an empath, right? I marry someone who, like, feels so deeply, who, like, understands the intricacies of joy, but also sadness and sorrow. And as we've been married for so long, the thing that I cannot stand, which is having hard conversations, sitting in my difficult feelings, that's all she wants to do when we fight. And so she's literally poking and triggering that part of me, the childhood wound that says, I cannot sit in my negative emotions or I'll get stuck there. That's terrified of being there. And she triggers and she pokes it all the time when we fight. And it's hard and it hurts and it's painful. But you know what? Eight years being married to that woman, I have become more empathetic. I've become more in touch with my emotions. I know how to sit in sadness sometimes. Now I'm still growing. But she's helped that unresolved, the wounded child in me that, that doesn't allow itself to feel, 
to start maturing and to start healing. In the Genesis narrative, it says, this is why a man will leave his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Yes, we're physically leaving our parents and our homes when we get married, but we're also leaving behind our old ways of living. What do I mean by that? How many of you know that our families live in our bones, right? In the most beautiful ways, we carry the culture of love that they created for us, history, traditions, culture, but also in the ugly ways, we carry with us generational trauma, right? Destructive habits and patterns that were never resolved, that were unspoken of in our family, that were glossed over. We carry those things until we choose to confront them. Marriage calls us to confront all those negative, destructive habits that we carry with us in our family line. It calls us to leave behind the old ways of living that were taught to us by our families and create something new together, to leave behind the things we've learned that hinder love, how we deal or don't deal with conflict, how we interact with money, how we talk about sex, how we raise our children. We carry all those things into our relationship, but the beauty is my spouse is a mirror. And now I'm able to see for the first time, what are the things that hinder love? What are the things that I've carried with me in my family that are not good, that I don't want to perpetuate in the generations that come after me? The interesting thing about a mirror is this. It doesn't force you to change your image. It's, It's simply looking as you actually are. What do I mean by that? Like when I stand in front of a mirror, It doesn't like grow lips and say to me, hey, lose weight or like, you know, shave off that half-ass mustache that you have on your face because you're Asian. It doesn't say any of those things. By the way, this has taken three months, guys. I just don't have the genes. I just don't have it. Pray for me. Pray for your boy. When I stand in front of a mirror, it simply shows me who I am. A mirror doesn't have an opinion about me. It actually just highlights what I actually think about myself. Right? So when I look in front of a mirror and I feel like it's saying lose weight, it's not a reflection of what the mirror thinks about me. It's actually a reflection of what I think about myself. And in the same way, in marriage, our spouse becomes a mirror, showing us the reality of who we are, the best parts and the worst parts. But it's not a demand or an ultimatum to change. It's not, it's not hey, if you don't change this thing about yourself, I'm out of here. It's not, if you don't work on those ugly things, like I'm going to leave you. What our spouse becomes is a mirror that shows me the immature parts of my life that affect my ability to love you. It shows me the the ways that I put a wall between us. It shows me the ways I hinder love. It reveals to me the ways I have yet to learn how to love. And it challenges me to heal and to mature, not because I have to, not because you'll leave me, but because I want to love you better. And this is important Because the only people who truly change, who truly transform, are people who feel safe, who feel fully known, and fully loved. That's the only context where we truly change. Otherwise, it's an ultimatum. I'm performing so that you don't leave me. I'm performing so that you love me. But our spouse is to be a mirror that simply shows us who we are. Now, asterisk, there are situations in marriage where you should absolutely leave. There are moments where it is unsafe for you to stay, where it's toxic for you to remain. And people have bent scripture throughout history to justify harmful situations that actually needed to end. This has to be a two-way commitment to people moving toward one another in self-sacrificial covenant love. That's what we're talking about here. 
My man TK again, so much wisdom on this. He says this, within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. But now, look at you. In marriage, we get to come alongside one another and say, I see who God is making you, and I'm here on this journey with you. It's like, it's like Avatar. I see you, Jake Sully. It's like, it's like we see each other for the first time and say, I see who you really are. I see who God is forming you to be. I see who God has made you to be. One of the best gifts that I receive from Krista is when she looks at me and she looks just beyond like the natural circumstances of who I am. My impatience, my, my lack of ability to be emotionally intelligent, she looks past that and says, this is actually who you are. And she calls out the man that God has called me to breathe. What a privilege that we get to take part in God's process of forming one another. So marriage is a fireplace. Marriage is a mirror. And the last one, marriage is a storybook. Have you ever seen a love story that was so beautiful, so moving, that it inspired you to want that kind of love or to be that kind of love. Maybe it was a movie. Maybe it was a Korean drama. Us Koreans just have an anointing for that, y'all. Maybe, actually, a lot of Korean dramas are really toxic. It's horrible. Like, it's just not good. Evil stepmother, right? Maybe it was that couple that you sat with for a meal that just inspired you. That's the kind of love I want. Have you ever been there? Um, Last week, there's a show on HBO called The Last of Us. And if you've seen episode three, let me tell you something. It is by far the best love story that I've seen in an episodic episode of television in my entire life. It is so good. In fact, after I watched it, it was like midnight and Krista had fallen asleep. I turned on the, the theme song for one of those moments in one of the, the climatic scenes, and I just watched Krista sleeping for like six minutes. I know it sounds creepy, but I promise. I was, I was just like, I love you so much. Like, I want to I love you. It's such a beautiful song, by the way. And I just, it inspired me to love. It inspired me. It was, it was beyond the couple that was portrayed, is what I'm saying. And you know what? Why do we love love stories? Because they teach us something about love that goes beyond the couple. That's bigger than just the two of them. It sweeps us up into a greater story of love. Marriage tells a bigger story. It speaks of a greater love. In fact, marriage is the image that God uses to describe the story of Jesus and us, the church. Jesus giving his life in self-sacrificing love for us, his bride. Henry Nguyen who uh, my lovely wife quoted earlier, he says this about marriage. Marriage is not a lifelong attraction of two individuals to each other, but a call for two people to witness together to God's love. The intimacy of marriage itself is an intimacy that is based on the common participation in a love greater than the love two people can offer each other. The real mystery of marriage is not that husband and wife love each other so much that they can find God in each other's lives, but that God loves them so much that they can discover each other more and more as living reminders of God's divine presence. 
They are brought together, indeed, as two prayerful hands extended toward God and forming in this way a home for God in this world. Not powerful. Marriage creates a home for God in this world, a taste of his presence, of his kingdom. Our love stories tell of a greater love story. They are signposts of the kingdom. They point to a greater reality. Every time people come to the altar, every time they make their vows, every time they say, I do, they tell the story of the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel story is Jesus on the cross for the ones he loved. As he looked down on those who hurt him and crucified him, as he looked down on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, as he saw you and I and all the times we would deny him, betray him, and seek our own good selfishly in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He stayed up there. And this is the heartbeat of the story of marriage that although you hurt me, although you let me down, although you make mistakes, I choose to stay and love you. And every time you choose to stay, every time you choose to love, you tell the world of a love that's greater than just the two of you, a love beyond anything that you too could have cultivated on your own. Marriage tells a greater story. We're going to continue this next week. I have a a few more points about this, but today I just want to park here. And I'm convinced in all of this that one of the most powerful ways that we can love one another is to make each other feel seen and known. And so in a moment, I want to lead us into an activity uh, to do that. But first, uh, let me close in prayer, invite up the worship team, and we're going to dive into this a little more. Father, we thank you for who you are. And God, we thank you for this gift of marriage. We thank you, Lord, whether we are in a season where we're looking for that, whether we're in a season where that's far off or we're somewhere in between, we thank you that this is a gift. This is a gift that allows us to taste your love. This is a gift that allows us to understand your covenant with us. This is a gift that allows us to be fully known and fully loved. In many ways, it's an extension of your love and your knowledge of us. And I pray that today, wherever we're at, that we would catch a glimpse of your heart for marriage. That even us, we would be challenged right now. How can I cultivate within myself the kind of partner, the kind of spouse I would be to my future spouse? So right now, God, would you speak to us? What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to practice the discipline of knowing one another. You know, um, one of my biggest gripes growing up in a charismatic church community is like whenever it was prayer time, like it was all about prophetic. And so like, like when we pray for each other, we used to tell people, don't tell someone what to pray for. Like let the spirit tell you what to pray for them. And there's beautiful things that come out of that because like, oh, how did you know that? Like God must have spoken to you. But, but I think one thing that it, it, it takes from us is this, um, this, this ability or this practice of like sitting with someone and actually getting to know them. Like when we do that, we don't allow each other to hear ourselves. We don't allow the person to be heard. We don't allow them to be seen in the ways that we often do. And so today what we're going to do, it's a simple practice, but I'm going to make it real sacred. We're going to make it real sacred in here. 
you're going to look to someone next to you, just one person. And if you can, I, I would love for everyone to participate. And you're going to look to someone, and this is simply what you're going to ask. How are you doing? And, you know, you can respond however deep you want. I know that sometimes um, it takes a lot of trust to be vulnerable. But, but I do encourage you to be somewhat vulnerable, um, to answer honestly how you're doing, what you're going through. And here's what's going to happen after. The other person is not going to pray for you. They're not going to give you a prophetic word. They're not going to lay hands on you. They're simply going to repeat back to you word for word what you just told them. And the job of the person who shared initially is to correct them if they missed something or if they uh, misread something. So, for example, me and Josh are doing this activity, and Josh says, "Um, I'm not doing too well. Uh, Work's been really hard. Family life's been hard. I'm not doing very well in my video games. Not doing well. And my job is to say, what you're telling me is that life is hard right now. Work is really hard. Um, Family life is really hard. You're doing okay in your games? No. And then he'll correct me and say, no, I told you I'm not doing well in my games. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to make light of the situation. But you guys get what I mean? And so this is simply a practice of empathy and getting to know each other. And there's something sacred in that. I know sometimes it feels less spiritual than like praying for one another. But this is actually the gospel, that Jesus came down and lived our humanity, like knew us. He said, I'm not interested in like jumping to the, I want to get in the dirt with you and know exactly what your life is like, know exactly what you go through. I'm going to be raised as a human boy in a Jewish family. I'm going to know the human plight. And so that's what we're going to do for one another. And so Jacob's going to play some tinkly music. We're going to give you guys space to do this. And that's all you do. You're not allowed to pray. No one's allowed to pray for each other. I'm serious. I'm going to walk up to you and say, stop praying for each other. If you do, you're just going to ask, how are you doing? You're going to repeat back what you feel like you heard. Other person's going to correct you if they're wrong or add to it if you're wrong. And you're going to go back and forth. So uh, let's do that right now. But let me open us up in a word of prayer. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. Create a space here, Lord, where we can be fully known, fully seen, so that we can be fully loved. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, make this atmosphere ripe with your presence and with your spirit, with who you are. And give us the, the safety and the vulnerability to be able to share openly and honestly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.